Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi-American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Spilling Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome to episode 13 of Spilling Chai. When it comes to the issue of immigration, we hear so much about the dreamers. But who are they and what do they dream of? Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, is a program that protects dreamers, young undocumented immigrants who came to the United States as children and grew up here, from being deported. Early this summer, in two separate cases, the U.S. Supreme Court and a federal appeals court both ruled that the Trump administration was unjustified in ending an Obama-era program that temporarily halts deportations for hundreds of thousands of dreamers. Not surprisingly, the current brazenly anti-immigration administration has refused to comply. We are so lucky to have as our guest today NBC producer Daniela Pierbravo. Pierbravo is a New York City-based producer for MSNBC's iconic show, Morning Joe. She is a contributor and ambassador for Mika Brzezinski's Know Your Value platform, a contributor for NBC News Digital, and co-author of The Earn It Book. Pierbravo is also a dreamer, and she joins us today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Daniela. So one of the things I admire so much about you is how open you have been about your immigration story and about being undocumented. Tell me about your journey from Chile to NBC Studios at 30 Rock. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. It's a long story, much of which I used and earned and I spoke about my story. And I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how it is with your situation, but I was not that comfortable being so open and vulnerable at the beginning because it wasn't all rosy posy. It was, yeah, right. It was dark times filled with anxiety and uncertainty and not knowing what was going to come next. I've only recently discovered you know, all of the built up emotional baggage that I've brought just by having an immigrant story and living in the world that we live in. And I often find that we internalize the bias that we know very well that we kind of grew up with. And so from Chile to NBC Studios is a long way. I grew up in a small town in Ohio, we crossed the border. And at the time I was 11 and I didn't really know how long we were going to stay. I was the oldest. My world back then was Harry Potter <laughs> because, you know, I grew up with a lot of housing insecurity and we were constantly moving. And my parents are really hardworking and growing up as the oldest of five was a lot. And I always saw them have two and three jobs. And so 
when I grew up in this little tiny town of, of Ohio, it was mostly white. I went to school with, I think I was the only Latina at school. And so the stories or the narratives of immigrants were not pretty. And I didn't understand that. And because I didn't have sort of a nucleus of kind of an immigrant community or Latina friends, I didn't really know where to see myself. I didn't really know what narrative to believe about myself. I've always been sort of a very confident person and a strong sense of self. But when people that are close to you are calling Hispanics all illegals and having these preconceived narratives of what an immigrant or undocumented worker is, it's scary. And for me, I was in the shadows and I was terrified, Anache, of being able to get caught, right? I was constantly living in fear through high school and college of just being caught and living out the narrative of other people's assumptions of me. And so I tried my best to create a sense of my own narrative. And the way that I did that was to take things in my own hands. So even in high school, you know, typical high school student, I wanted to do well in my call in my courses. I took college courses because I knew that my parents were going to have a hard time paying for college and I was undocumented, so I didn't know how I was going to get in. And so I worked really, really hard and I overcompensated, which is a theme that has overlapped in many parts of my life. But because I was so scared of that narrative and it was the summer before I graduated college, miraculously, I was able to attend college. I paid cash here and there. I had like four side jobs while I was paying for college because I couldn't get any government loans. I couldn't get any scholarships from the government, even though my parents you know, were no place to be able to pay for college. So I really had to pay everything cash. So really, really taught me really on, on the worth of the dollar and being able to do things little by little. I had to take semesters off here and there and work side jobs, but I was totally fine with just the opportunity to go to college. Well, to get to NBC Universal was a little bit of a more of a jump. I didn't have professional mentors. I didn't have the ability to just send my resume and have it be sent at the top of the pile because of the people that I knew because I didn't know anybody. And so here I was in this little tiny town of Ohio and I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to make it anywhere, I'm going to make it in New York City, right? If anywhere, I'm going to make it there because there just wasn't the opportunities. Might have been like watching too many TV shows and movies, but <laughs> so it ended up working out because I sent out my resume, I think, to like 20 or 25 places and I mean, I sent it out everywhere. I sent it to small boutique agencies, PR agencies, jewelry companies, marketing companies, media companies. I just wanted to be surrounded by professionals that looked like me, that I could learn from, people of color and Latinas, that it was hard growing up in the small town that I did. And so I was thirsting for those type of stories of success. So I ended up getting a call back from P. Diddy's or Sean Combs or however you call me, he has a million names. <laughs> To his marketing agency and they called me for a screening interview and they said can you come in tomorrow we see that you're local and what I didn't mention is at the top of my resume I had said that I lived in New York City because going back to what we talked about this narrative that people put on you because of labels right so because I was a college student in Ohio that wasn't local that I probably couldn't pay to live in New York City so I was going through my head of like all these different reasons why the hiring manager would make excuses for themselves not to give me the in-person inter interview. And so I ended up saying that I lived in New York. 
I got on a bus that same day. I got to Port Authority, the bus station just like 12 hours later, maybe 18, I think it was 18 hours later, nine stops through the night on a bus. And I got to the internship interview and nailed it because I didn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) One thing led to another and DACA didn't exist, right? This was the time where I was still undocumented and getting on that bus and working for an unpaid internship and finding side jobs in a city that I didn't know what I was doing in was hard. But I think it's kind of like the immigrant spirit. Like that's what it is. You just just small steps at a time and one thing leads to another. You write in your article, this is what a dreamer looks like, that My parents were often away, working from one shift to another, which meant I learned to be self-sufficient and mentally tough early on, fueled by the understanding that I was the extension of my mother's dreams, sweat, and tears. Literally, I've witnessed her silent weeps of exhaustion after coming home from a third shift, but I never once saw her verbally complain. This was an opportunity for her children to have a better life, her American dream. Why do you think... It's still so hard for Americans to see immigration as a human rights story and not a criminal story. I mean, after all these years and all these stories, we are not just people at the border being detained. Why do you think Americans still don't get it? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. That's something, it's a question that I'm constantly asking myself all the time. And I think it's blind spots. And I think we have come at a reckoning in general, I think, in terms of our social conscious. Nothing is more of a better example of that than the Black Lives Matter movement that has really, truly been such a reckoning in the conscious of Americans. And I think that it highlights this sense of blind spots. When I think of immigration and the stories that have been told so many times, it's this conscious blind spot, or maybe it's unconscious, and it's these pockets of, I don't know if it's this sense of kind of shielding yourself and your own privilege and not seeing past that. And I think it's scary to reckon with the notion that immigrants have, you know, as I wrote, been through blood, sweat, and tears and are still not given the rights and opportunities, and I'm talking about DACA recipients in general, we have so much support from even people in Trump's base and the majority of Republicans are very much in line with wanting to keep DACA recipients here. And it's a lot easier to read a story or look at a story and then kind of turn away if it just, if it's too much. I feel like with the stories of immigration and immigrants, especially when we talk about children being separated at the border, it's really easy to look up those stories. And if you don't personally have anybody that is in your immediate circle that's affected, it's so easy to just sit on your privilege and just keep going with your day. And so I think that it's sad. I think that blind spots can be really harmful to not only just the narrative of what we think about immigrants, and especially undocumented immigrants, but therefore the real obstacles that they faced and the prejudice that they face in these smaller communities. And so going back to your original question, and you asked me why did I decide to be so vulnerable, and it's uncomfortable with putting my whole self out there and talking about the dark times, and it's kind of re-traumatizing in some sense. But it's important to know that we are people that love and want to contribute to this country with the same type of fervent fervor that any other American has. The only difference is through lack of paperwork. And 
for me, it is a constant battle to be able to keep telling my narrative and to keep telling these stories of not only myself, but immigrants out there that are putting their blood, sweat and tears to be able to contribute to this, their own families, of course, but the society in general. I mean, how many small business owners are there in this country that are aiding the economy and are helping Americans? It's frustrating to keep telling these stories and to keep almost trying to identify ways where we're enough or that we are valuable because it's exhausting. It's like we're already doing the work. We're already contributing. It shouldn't have to be that every chance we get, we have to yet prove ourselves over and over again. You are the co-author of Earn It with Mika Brzezinski and a contributor to her Know Your Value platform for NBC News Digital. What do you want young women to know about being unapologetic about your ambitions and your dreams? Yeah, I mean, that's so important. From my point of view, I had to do everything in my being to be able to take control of my narrative. And one of the things that is so important about being unapologetic, which is kind of the heart of the book, is this idea of not waiting for permission. I spoke from a perspective of somebody who was once undocumented, who is now a DACA recipient. But this message of not waiting for permission and not being apologetic is important for all women. I don't care what race or background you come from. It is so important to not wait to be told the opportunities that you can go out and grab for you. I love my mom and my grandma. They're great women, taught me a lot of important things in life. But I think culturally, I was told to find patience and benefit in waiting my turn. I don't know if you encounter this, but but I was told, you know, if you just work hard and put your head down, people will notice. No, they won't. No. They will not notice. One of the things as I was constructing this book with Mika was this idea of showing how to exercise your advocated muscle from the beginning, right? Because we often talk about women, it's so important to negotiate. It's so important to make sure that moment of advocating for yourself for your salary or for your job, like make sure you take care of that moment and that you are prepared for that moment. And I almost feel like we should be advocating for ourselves way before that. And this book is specifically for women that are entering the workplace that maybe are in their mid twenties or late twenties, early thirties. And it's really important that we defy that notion of waiting for permission and to know that You know, there are stereotypes with millennials in general, with women in the workplace, with minority women, and we have to all grapple with that. So the question is, how do you grapple with all that and still be able to advocate for yourself effectively that and combat this idea of, oh, she's too aggressive. Oh, she's too threatening. Oh, she's too much. Oh, she's too intense. I've gotten that a lot at the beginning of my career, (laughs) but it's opened up a lot of doors, but yet We have to be able to do that in a way that we don't hit the glass ceiling when it comes to year five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. So the book is really giving us the tools and the techniques and the anecdotes to be able to not hit a glass ceiling when we reach our mid-careers. What is it like working for a woman like Mika to have her as a mentor? Yeah, I mean, she comes from a family of immigrants as well. So I think she had a deep appreciation for the hustle and grit that I showed right off the gate. And I mean, she is one of those type of people that is not only just a mentor, but she's a sponsor. 
And the people that she believes in and she takes under her wing, I mean, she goes full force. I mean, I think I have never met somebody as determined and as passionate, but also that gives women real opportunity like Mika. I mean, it's not just me. I've seen people that she has coached and helped women that have been on air and that she's helped advocate for in real time. And she's just, I mean, tremendous. And the reason why the collaboration between me and her works so well, and it's one of the big pieces of advice that I give young women who are so desperate to find mentors, is that it has to be a two-way street and it has to be organic and authentic. I worked for Mika for two years, putting my head down and doing the work and literally going out of my way and doing things for her and for the show that weren't on my job resume because I wanted to be noticed. But for those two years, I just did the work and she knew nothing about my backstory. And it wasn't until 2016, and I tell the story in the book, is when we were out for primaries for the presidential election at the time, we were in South Carolina, we were doing a show, she had an event in Tennessee that afternoon and her chief of staff fell sick. And the first person she thought of was me. And I was on the road with her. I was somebody that she could trust, like I could get the job done. And I just worked really hard. And so it wasn't until we were sitting next to each other on a plane ride. This was kind of like the first time that I had alone time with her because usually talent has a million people around them. And so this was the first time I was one-on-one with her and I came to her with this idea of creating this platform for Latinas around the country who didn't have access to resources and mentors. And I had seen the work firsthand that she had done with Know Your Value that have really changed the lives of women everywhere. And I asked her for her advice for this platform. And she asked me, well, why do you want to do this platform? Right. I mean, how many people come up to me and ask for their advice? Tons of women. <laughs> and so I started telling her about my story of being undocumented and getting into NBC and the story about getting on the bus the same day for an unpaid internship and working these side jobs and growing up as the oldest of five and seeing the real tragedy that it was of people that I grew up with who didn't have professional mentors and just didn't have that know-how or that playbook or that helping hand. And she really resonated with that. And she kind of stayed quiet after that because we talked a lot and she had heard my story for the first time. And it wasn't until, you know, a few months later, she FaceTimed me and she's like, we're writing the book. We're writing what you want to get out with access. And we're writing it for all these women of color, minorities, Latinas. The story of being able to really reign how you want your narrative to be told and controlling your message so that you can have that advocating power. So it was really a collaboration that was rooted in deep belief of my mission and also her want and need to see women succeed. And I just, I can't be more grateful for people like her. And I truly believe that if corporate America had more people like her, women everywhere would be going up the ranks much faster and much more efficiently. What are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? Oh, I do have some news. I haven't shared this yet. I just signed a deal for a second book. And so this is my solo project. And it's going to be talking about the mental toll that comes with being a minority in the workplace and the, the emotional burdens that we have to go through and the extra 
sort of loop that we have to get through to be able to advocate and advance. And I'm also working on a mentoring platform that I have created through because I thought, you know, so many people come up to me, including the readers of Earn It. And I thought, what if I created a space where I could help young women in a more curated way? So women that are going through different life stages and incorporating a community aspect to it. So I'm really excited because I'm in pilot mode right now. I've got about 40 women of literally all over the world, really, from Chile, Central America, Canada, all coasts of the U.S. representative, all different types of backgrounds and ethnicities. So I'm really excited to put that into the world. But right now I'm in pilot mode. So if anybody listening wants to get involved or feel like they want to get behind a community of women knowing to advocate for themselves and working with the imposter syndrome and being able to combat all those feelings of not being enough, I have some info on my Instagram on how to get involved. My own immigration story is very different from Daniela's. I first came to America as an international student at the University of Virginia, eventually went on to get an H-1B work visa, met my now husband back in 2008, got my green card, and then became a U.S. citizen in 2013. Daniela and my stories may be different, but our dreams as immigrants in America are the same in the sense that we both have them. Everyone has dreams. Getting to go to college in America, as I write in my latest CNN op-ed, was a game changer for me and allowed for so many of my dreams to come true. America used to encourage, applaud, and celebrate immigrants. But what's different about this administration is that with Stephen Miller running policy, it doesn't matter if you pursue legal immigration or have no good options. The Trump administration treats all immigrants, even asylum seekers, as criminals. November can't come soon enough. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you're not following us on social, what are you even doing? We have a fantastic new social media content manager, Chris Fitzner. Big shout out and welcome to the Spilling Chai team, Chris. And until next time, my dear listeners, let's keep brewing the chai.